I was the only woman on my team. I was the only person of color on my team when I first started out, and I felt very alone. I mean, if you look at like the Google keynote or a Facebook conference or stuff like that, the amount of Latino people that are represented on those conferences is still very, very low. You're listening to Create Community. I'm your host, Marsha Drucker. On this podcast, we're exploring the human side of community. I'm chatting with some amazing community builders to define what community truly means. Joining me today are Crystal Garcia and David Silva. They're the leaders of Tecaria, which is a nonprofit that serves and connects the largest community of Latinx people in tech. They empower Latinx professionals with the resources and support that they need to thrive and become leaders in the tech industry. Techaria is one of the most diverse and inclusive communities I've had the pleasure of learning about. Their members come from so many different walks of life and regions across the Latinx community. We chat about the origin story of Techaria, the nitty gritty of growing it, micro communities within the community, and so much more. So let's jump right into it. David, Crystal, welcome to Create Community. Super excited to chat with you guys today. Yeah, awesome. Super excited to be here. Awesome. So today we have two guests on the podcast, which we haven't tried before. Super excited for this little bit of an experiment. And we're chatting about a super exciting community today. So to start off with, why don't we kick it off with David? Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in Colombia, in South America, in a city called Cali, which is a feature in Narcos. And when did you move to the States? I moved to the United States only like eight years ago. I've moved to San Francisco first. I lived there for like five years. I was working for a startup called Doctor on Demand. And then I moved to New York about three years ago. Just blurter, I guess, and see more of the country. And Crystal, what about you? Where did you grow up and where's your family from? So I'm originally from El Paso, Texas. It's a border town in like the most western point of Texas. But I spent a lot of time in New Mexico as well, just because it's right on the border there. And all of my family still lives there. And my family has been a part of that region for hundreds of years. So we like to say that, you know, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. And something that I find so interesting about this podcast and just chatting with different community builders is how we were community builders before we even realized it. And so many of our early experiences kind of shaped us and led us to starting the communities that we're running today. So I'd love to hear about some of your early experiences in community building and some of the first things that you sort of started. Why don't we kick it off with David again? I was a community builder, I feel like, since I was a kid. My parents would sign me up for a lot of volunteer opportunities. When I was like 12 years old, one of the first things I did was join a group of children that wanted to see peace on the country. It was, I guess, confusing because we were all kids and we didn't know exactly what we were doing, but it was uh, but it was really neat. Like, we would go with groups of children to talk with, like, leaders of the military and the government to tell them that, hey, war is not super great, we should stop doing that. Then high school, I was always involved in like the computer science club, lots of magic, the gathering, planning events, Dungeons and Dragons sessions. I was always like the one from the group or the high school that was like getting other people together, inviting people to hang out, like connecting friends with other friends, same throughout college, even at work. Sometimes I'm like the person that is like coordinating the happy hours and uh, connecting everybody at work, trying to make every room where we're at a better place. So it's, it's very easy like, to, when we started a community to bring a lot of that energy into 
creating a community that was like sincere. I would say like since I was a kid, I was always in leading little groups, whether we were like raising money for our school dance or we had a competition. I was in like future problem solvers where we just basically were given a crazy science fiction problem and we had to figure out how we would create a new living environment on Mars, for example, or what tool we would use to farm on a different planet. And I feel like I've always been kind of leading groups in that way, just getting people to participate pay and contribute and feel comfortable, you know, even when you're solving a very strange problem. And I think even in high school, I was in like various clubs for animal rights and just staying involved as much as I could. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. Now you both have incredible jobs in tech. I'm really curious how you both got into tech and if there were any barriers along the way that you faced to actually get into the industry. I sort of was accidentally joining tech. When I moved to San Francisco, I knew that it was a very tech-centered place. And of course, I knew all the big companies were there. And I thought, wow, this is like a place I want to be. But not really having a technical background, I ended up in a lot of service roles. So executive assistant, office manager, those types of things, managing facilities. It became really apparent that the people that had the most fun, that were contributing the most to the products were engineers, product designers, UX designers, who are building these incredible tools that change the world. And so I decided pretty late in my career to kind of make that switch and jump into trying to be an engineer and build these things and get on the other side of the company from a non-technical role into a technical role. So that switch happened just a few years ago and I've been very happy with everything I've learned and my abilities since then. I think I had a similar thing like I went to school for something completely unrelated. I went to art school, but I was a terrible like artist, so I couldn't work on that. And when I was looking for a job or something that I could do, it must have been like 20, 21 at the time, a friend hired me or like told me to work at his company. I'm doing like Joomla templates, WordPress templates. So it was kind of like coding. Then I discovered tech or like found out about tech in like 2011. I attended a startup weekend. And I loved that. It, I thought it was super fun, exhilarating, very exciting to work in like small startups, creating products from scratch, sometimes creating a product that you don't know exactly where it's going to go or in what direction it's going to go. And I started working for like a startup in Colombia. At the time, there was like almost no startups and it was like starting and very few people knew what the war was. So after a few years of that, a couple of years of that, I decided to move to Silicon Valley and try my luck there. And I guess fortunately it worked. So I feel like this is a perfect segue to jump into chatting about Tech Korea. So you mentioned that some of the struggles and the barriers that you faced was that you didn't really have a community, especially in tech, and you had just immigrated. Tell me a little bit more about the origin story of Tech Korea. What exactly inspired you to start it? And what is Tech Korea for anybody listening who's maybe not familiar with it? So Tech Korea is a community for Latinos in tech. It is... I believe, we believe, the largest community for Latino people in tech in the U.S. We have several chapters around the country, lots of volunteers. Most of our members interact, you know, online in like an online Slack community and different other, you know, social medias where we are on. And, you know, I guess before the pandemic, we used to have a lot of in-person events that were very popular. And Tequeria started in like 2015, November. I had just come out of Burning Man with my co-founder. You know, we come back very inspired from the event and we're thinking about things that we can do to help society like a little better. And another thing that we were thinking about, we're both Latinos and we both live in Silicon Valley. We have basically zero 
Latino friends that work in tech. And, you know, we're aware that there's very, very few Latinos in tech, but that means there should be at least like one or five. Like, um, why don't we, why are we not friends with them? So we decided that the best way to probably find other Latinos in tech was to start a meetup, kind of like advertise it a little, see what happens, see who ends up showing up. Our first event, only one person showed up. So it was a lot of extra beer and pizza. But it was exciting. Our second event had four people and then, you know, kept growing and growing until the point that we are today. Crystal, like, how did you get involved with the community and how did you come across it? I moved from sort of service roles into a technical role. And I think when you're in service roles, you have a built-in community because those roles are often taken up by other people of color, other women. And so it felt very jarring for me to move into a technical role and all of a sudden be a very obvious minority in my field. I was the only woman on my team. I was the only person of color on my team when I first started out. And I felt very alone. It just didn't feel comfortable for me to not only not have the same educational background as my coworkers and peers, but to also feel on a cultural level, just very like out of my element. So I saw a Tequeria event happening in the Bay Area and I went to it and it was magic for me. I heard people speaking Spanish and the music and the food were everything I was expecting. And I finally felt so home and so welcome and to hear people also talking about the technical challenges they're facing to see leaders who look like you know I could aspire to be one day I uh, was just super inspiring so I joined the Slack community to just keep up with their events and it kind of snowballed from there I just was there a lot on the Slack you know spending a lot of time there and eventually started to volunteer my efforts into being a lead for that community and helping to grow it into what it is now Actually, I've had a similar cases like that on my Fuck Up Nights Toronto team, where I have like amazing team members that join sort of in the same way where they've been coming out to the events and it really spoke to them. Some of them were inspired to change careers or to even like quit their jobs and jump into entrepreneurship. And the Fuck Up Nights was sort of the community that really helped them along their journey. And they decided to volunteer their time and I think both of you already highlighted this a little bit, but I do want to learn a little bit more about why you think there's a true need for this community to exist specifically for Latinx folks. Latinx in tech is a very small minority across the board, whether you're an engineer or working as a product manager or product designer, there's just not very many of us. And it is often the case that folks are the only one in their company or on their team. And so it's, it's important for us to provide this community so that we can show people like there are many more of us who have similar backgrounds, who have similar aspirations, and we can all do this together. I think one of the greatest barriers for students who are just coming into tech who are, are Latinx is that they don't know anybody working in tech. Our numbers are so small that they don't even know who they could talk to about a potential career in tech, or they don't have connections to internships, or they don't know who to ask about a job opening. So providing this community is not only helping people already there in tech, but bringing in a lot of new folks who are just graduating college or skipping college and going right into the workforce and providing this network that supports them during their career growth, who is there to help them with job referrals, who's there to provide resources for their continuing education. And we just need this network because it's not already built into our cities and into our workplaces. So incredibly needed. David, I'm curious about how the community has grown and expanded from the very first chapter to your second city and then to the 12 cities that you're in now. Was it more of like an organic process or was it very planned? Like, did you know exactly how you wanted to expand it? 
the opposite of plan. It's been very organic. And, you know, as you were mentioning earlier, it's super inspiring to hear from the volunteers and the chapter leaders, because most of them have found the community and decided to volunteer in the community because of the personal benefits and the value that they saw from it. Our first city was LA. I mean, I moved to New York three years ago, so that's why we started the New York chapter. We met somebody from Portland at a conference last year, and he said it's at the Portland chapter. Now we have a chapter in Miami, Boston, Colorado. But yeah, everything has been very organic. We haven't like advertised or reached out to many people. Uh, we do go and podcast and things like that sometimes, and sometimes people find us from that way. I love the organic growth. Very similar story with Fuck Up Nights. You know, the organization started in Mexico City with uh, with just a few entrepreneurs sitting around drinking mezcal, and they got to talking about some of their biggest fuck ups in business. And it turned out to be the most honest business conversation that they've ever had. And it just grew very organically from there. First, just as an underground thing in Mexico City, and then as people were traveling through from other parts of the world and asking how they could start their own chapter. So pre-COVID times, tell me how you were bringing people together. I know you've done a lot of events, you were part of other conferences. Tell me a little bit about some of those initiatives and what your community looked like offline. So before COVID happened, Tequeria had a lot of different kinds of events in person. They could be anything from a panel of uh, Latinx speakers who were talking about their job experience. It could be casual happy hours or meetups for Cafecito, which is just, you know, a very casual coffee shop hangout. Other chapters were getting together for happy hour or trying new tacos at a new spot. So any, I think, reason we had to join together for an event was really what we were doing. But it's really individual to the chapter. Some chapters are very active and go hiking. Other chapters chapters are very business focused and do workshops or trade resources. So it really depends on the individual unit of each city. Super cool. Yeah, you definitely have to cater it. So I want to spend some time chatting about uh, the Tech Korea online community. I think you've built something incredible with just the amount of members that you have and how active the community is. So David, why did you start the Slack and when did you start it in terms of your growth journey with Tech Korea? I want to say like a few months after our first meetup, most likely we started because at the time Slack was just becoming like a tool for communities. So we tried that as like a way to like experiment. I think like we opened like a Facebook group, we opened a LinkedIn group, we opened the Slack, we tried out different methods to see where the members would be more comfortable, but also where the leadership was more comfortable to like participate because um, nobody was necessarily in the mood or qualified to like write a newsletter and then the newsletter doesn't provide very good two-way communication. Slack seemed like a perfect place to have a community where members could interact with each other, refer each other for jobs, talk about like their struggles. So Crystal, tell me a little bit more about how you actually make your Slack a true community. How do you foster connection between members and really encourage them to have these discussions and to connect with one another? Slack is great for quick communication between all of our members, and especially since we are global at this point. But I think the thing I love about it is that it is both a professional network, but it's also very casual in the sense that like we're just connecting over our shared cultural interests or cultural food. And so we have a lot of different channels to really facilitate conversations from professional growth and compensation all the way over to food and music. So I think that we offer a lot of different spaces for people to converse and jump into the conversation 
conversation. And sometimes people start in those casual conversations and then they start to get more into the professional conversations where they're really talking about the struggles they have at work, how they're trying to get promoted or tough conversations around compensation. So it's really offering a lot of different types of conversations for people to get acquainted with us and the rest of the group. But I think that we just do our best as moderators and as managers of this community to make sure that we are keeping a safe space for everybody to feel heard. We want to make sure that everybody knows that we have a very diverse community and we have very diverse politics and everyone can be heard as long as we maintain a very respectful conversation. Everything's good here. That's so important to note. And I think, you know, especially now with what's happening with cancel culture and, you know, just people when they get into disagreements, just fully like canceling each other and not being able to really like try to come to an understanding or see where that person is even coming from. And then I know that you guys also started a Discord community. Can you tell me a little bit more about when that came about and why you need both and what the difference is between the SOC community and what's going on on Discord? Yeah, I think the Discord was started because someone had already started it without us. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that if it's representing Tequeria, that we are there to to moderate and just make sure everything's going according to what we want. But I think that it is smaller. Discord is not as popular as Slack is. And I think for some folks like who are just getting into text, even Slack is new. So Discord is definitely very new for them. But I think it is important to always be where the people are, right? If we don't sponsor this community, it's going to exist without us. And we don't want Decadia to be misrepresented or for people to think like, oh, wow, they really don't care about their members if they're allowing all of this to happen when we don't know about it. So we are trying to be where, where everyone else is and starting those communities to keep an eye on them and participate and give answers and support where we can. That's really interesting. That's awesome that you were able to, you know, just jump into it to make sure that you are where your community wants to be. So something that I find really fascinating about Tech Korea is the amount of micro communities that are happening within there. The Latinx community is so incredibly diverse and it's so amazing that you're bringing together all of these people under one roof and under one, well, virtual roof, I should say. But how do you ensure that you're holding space for everybody's perspectives and not just your own lived experience. We have channels for just about every country in Latin America so that folks can connect with other folks from their country. And I think that for a lot of us, it's been a huge educational part that we've had to learn from, from a Mexican background. And in my eyes, coming from a border town, everything Latinx is Mexican. So even for me, it took a lot to learn that, you know, some words aren't translated the same. Common foods aren't the same across Latin America. The way they use uh, language and slang is different. The politics are wildly different. So even within us, our lived experiences are very, very different. And we have to be very aware that even being in a culture that is dominant, when people think of Latinx, there are many, many, many more people who belong in that group and who who aren't as represented. And we have to make space for them and, and make sure that we are not just leaning towards one culture or one background. And I think it's really important that when we're thinking about displaying Tequeria information, that it's not heavily leaning towards one particular country or cultural background and that we're sort of representing as many of us as we can. I think that's so fascinating. And did you realize that right from the get go? Or was there, you know, any, I don't want to say like conflict or strife, but, you know, like, how did you really realize that this was something that was like very important and that you needed to create some of those channels to really help people find belonging within the community and really to be able to express their perspectives? 
when we even look at the in-person events we've done, when we theme them or do food, it's easiest to do something that's Mexican because there are a lot of Mexican restaurants, there are a lot of Mexican decorations, but it's something that even I didn't notice when I walked into an event because it's very natural for me to see that coming from where I, I grew up. But for other folks, you know, when we started talking about this in Tequeria, people brought up like, why do we have this? Why can't we have, you know, this dish from my country? Why can't we have other backgrounds represented? Why can't we have other types of music or other types of decorations around to make more people feel welcome in that space? And I think a lot of this dialogue happens in Tequeria where everybody gets together and starts to collaborate more on what should our events look like? How can we incorporate more backgrounds and more food and music and more culture to make it more inclusive for everybody? Kind of similar with Fuck Up Nights, like when we first started off, like one of our key things from our HQ team in Mexico City was, you know, the direction to have beer at our events to really like create this environment where it's very chill and people are open. So our first couple of events, you know, we had an awesome craft beer partner. And then when we sent out the survey to our community members and our initial people that came out to those couple of events, there were some people that came back and, you know, mentioned that actually like I'm gluten free. So you know, everybody was drinking around me, but I wasn't able to enjoy an alcoholic beverage at this event. And it was just something that we didn't even think of at the time. But then moving forward, you know, we introduced having wine, even if it wasn't as on brand and as chill as beer might look, we had to give people that option. And, you know, people were really thankful for it. And, you know, having non-alcoholic beverages as well for anybody who might not want to drink at all at this type of event. So it's so key to be listening to your community and to really just understand what people would actually want. So, David, when you first started at Techria and it started growing, how did you realize that, you know, this should be a non-for-profit? And how did you go from that realization to actually structuring it, to creating your board and, you know, defining roles for the board and for the volunteer team? I wasn't the kind of person to come up with that idea. I think it was kind of like a collective decision. We were growing at a big size. We started needing to have expenses, hire people, sometimes get insurance for events, things like that. And uh, we were told by our friends or like by people that it was a lot easier to do all of that if we had a legal entity. So we're going to find like a nonprofit sponsor that we could operate under their wing at first because we weren't super interested, I guess, to get into like the details of having a board and a staff and a lot of that. But, um, but other people other advisors told us that uh, given the budget and the, the things that we were working on, it was a better idea to have a nonprofit. Somebody introduced us to a group of volunteer lawyers, like pro bono lawyers, that did a lot of the structuring of the nonprofit for us, which was super helpful. And, and overall, I guess when it comes to that, it's always better to ask other people in your area what is the best thing to do, like the best legal entity and different stuff like that, because, um, you know, nonprofit is not always the, the best way. There's a lot of overhead that comes with that. Thankfully, I guess we have a lot of volunteer, we have a lot of staff and people that has helped us a lot. And that's been great. So it was a lot of like figuring out, like as we go, we the law firm that was helping us create the bylaws and all that was, hey, you, you all have to like create a board. We started our board with basically like the first volunteers. We took the first chapter director that we had and some of the oldest volunteers and co-founders and we made it into a board. Again, we were kind of like learning. So we're trying, I guess, now to 
put a lot more thoughtfulness into a lot of that now that is the ball is running and now that all of these things are happening we're like okay well, let's revisit all of our boards and all of that and make sure that everything is done correctly there's a lot of things that we didn't know that we needed that we're learning about impact reports programming manager uh, how to like fill out apply for grants we tried to postpone it for as long as possible but we finally had to become a nonprofit when we were about three years old because um, we had just too many members and too many expenses and it was super helpful i definitely had to deal with this as well when i started fuck up nights in toronto i mean it's a chapter of a global organization but there wasn't really direction for how should you run it as a chapter so at first i think like one of my fuck ups ironically was that i thought it made sense as a nonprofit. i incorporated it as a nonprofit. And then within a year, I kind of realized that it wasn't really making sense for what it was in the city, just the way that it was growing and the goals that I had for it and the way that I wanted to structure the team. So I ended up having to work with a lawyer to dissolve the non-profit. And then I ended up basically running it under my corporation that I had for events and consulting. And it didn't change anything about the, like, the way that the community was run, the way that we were providing value to our members, our goal it was never profit but i found it easier just you know for the size of the community and for the legal and accounting side to deal with it under a corporation so how do you guys generate funds to keep your community sustainable we um, apply for grants any grants that we can apply to we are definitely looking at to support our community or software costs but we also have corporate sponsors who are interested in either promoting jobs to our community who would like information about their company included in our newsletters and folks that are looking to have events with us is an, another major way for our companies to help sponsor us and they will partner with us on hosting an event and usually well pre-covid times they would provide usually the catering and the space for us to get together. And now it's like they're helping us facilitate these workshops or panels. And I'm sure, you know, at times with the amazing, like diverse team that you have and the board and all the different directions that you could take this community in, I'm sure some disagreements come up or just differences of opinion on where to take the community. How does your team deal with this? And how do you make sure that, you know, you get on the same page and, and kind of iron those things out? There are some conversations, I guess, that are kind of tough and we don't want necessarily, you know, have the members find out about them because like everything, right? The process can be shocking, I guess, to some people. I think we try to make sure that everything's like shared and talked about if members or volunteers or uh, even board members have a disagreement with some of the procedures of the career. We try to make sure that concerns are heard, obviously. Like everything is, is one of those things that can always improve. We have like some sort of like consensus and the board can vote. Most of the time we agree on the principle of what we want and in our values, but we disagree maybe in the implementation. So it's very easy to find an agreement or to like come to a place where we're all kind of like happy or satisfied since, since we all have the wealthness of the community is our main goal. It's very clear that the community is the most important thing and that really makes a big difference when we're planning and we're organizing like having clear values and having like some sort of clear goals and objectives i would also add that i think we do a pretty good job of letting people decide if it's in their domain right so we have 
Slack community leads who are in very involved in the community. And oftentimes when we're talking about something, a rule to implement or something that's happening that we want to stop, generally we have a very broad conversation, but ultimately that decision falls on those community leads, right? Because that's their role and it's their sort of job to be in charge of that one section of Tecaria. And I think there's a lot of autonomy given to the different chapter directors to really decide for their chapter, what they're going to do, what kind of events they're going to host. And I think that breaking up the responsibility and not putting all of it on just the board lets us make decisions more quickly. While we're all getting aligned in a group conversation, ultimately that responsibility should fall in the group that needs a resolution. That's such a good point. For your chapter leaders, I'm curious, how do you really empower them to be able to make those types of decisions and really to bring the community to life in a way that makes sense for their city? Yeah, the chapter leaders do get onboarded. So they are given a lot of information about Tequeria, how we want to represent ourselves in public and to our chapter members. And that's really more about the just the guidelines of our community. We want to make sure that they are also creating a safe space, that they are also following our code of conduct for in-person events. But we also want them to feel like they have the power to host the kind of events they want to that are appropriate for their communities. And even if it's not a professional gathering or meetup, if it's a smaller, casual hangout and it works for them, that's, you know, within their power to do. Do. And I think that all of the chapter directors do get together. It's kind of a bi-coastal thing. We have like an East Coast group and a West Coast group. And so they get to talk to other chapter directors to see what they're doing in their communities so they can borrow ideas or talk about issues they're having. If they're having trouble with sponsors and finding resources, then the other chapter directors kind of pitch in to help them. So it's not entirely autonomous in the sense that they have this network of other people who are also doing the same thing, especially our more established chapters like San Francisco, LA, New York, who have a lot more members are really great resources for that. And then during COVID times, have you done anything where you sort of brought everybody together under one virtual event? Yeah, we posted some online happy hours. We do watching sessions for different uh, Latinx movies or comedy specials that have come out. We do happy hours. Uh, we do trivias. We try to get together as regularly as possible, even when we don't have a formal event going on, uh, just to keep the community engaged and talking to one another. And it's just a really good time to get everybody remembering that we are a community and we are here for everyone, even if we are kind of separated by our geographic locations. That's so cool. I love that. What do you use for those watching parties? Like, how do you get everybody into one place? What tool are you using for it? We use Netflix party. So everyone can sync their individual machines. And then there's like a chat running. It's, it's pretty great. That's so awesome. I've heard of some friends using that, but never a community. And that makes so much sense. For Fuck Up Nights, I think this was like two years ago now, we've done a Firefest screening in person. I think that's like probably like the biggest fuck up documentary out there. And it was a lot of fun to do that in person. So I want to get an understanding of what your vision is for where you want Tech Korea to go. So where do you see the future of Tech Korea and going? What are some things on the horizon? We want to see the future of Tech Korea as continuing to be one of the largest organizations for Latinos in tech. We have been considering or we have been helping a lot of like similar organizations for like smaller groups of Latinos in tech. Like we recently 
quote-unquote, like acquire. There was an organization called Dreamers in Tech that now it's part of the career programming. We collaborate a lot with Latinas in Tech, which is a similar organization in the country. And another thing that we are trying to research more about and to come up with better planning for is making sure that we are helping Latino people that want to work in tech to be like executives, public speakers, CEOs, so that the impact that we're having is not only in junior roles or helping people get their first job in tech, but also help people become really high up in their companies and really high up in the industry so that we can like change the face of Latino people in tech. Because I mean, if you look at like the Google keynote or a Facebook conference or stuff like that, the amount of Latino people that are represented on those conferences is still very, very low. And so the rest of the society doesn't necessarily think of Latinos as like super good engineers or things like that. So I think putting more people and putting more Latinos in those positions of power will help accelerate the change I want to see a lot. It will also change the face of the Latino community in front of the rest of the country, perhaps. And also it's going to create like a lot of wealth and a lot of like opportunities, not only for like the Latino people that we help employ in tech, but also for their families. Many of Latino folks are immigrants and they're still like supporting their families abroad, or they might be first generations and they might have a lot of family cousins and people that they want to be able to help. I love that. Those are some really amazing and lofty goals and totally the people in the organization to do it. For the jobs, I'm curious, are you curating sort of like a job board and working with some organizations or is that something that you have on the horizon? We have a very active jobs channel where people are already posting their referral links or jobs within their companies, but we are building currently a job board specifically for our members where we can highlight some of the companies that are sponsoring us and show their jobs and also post jobs that are through our other communities that we partner with. There's a lot of overlap in our community, so we want to make sure all those resources are available. So we are building our own job board. And on top of that, we want to build our own candidate bank where you can look at all of our members who are looking for jobs at the moment and be able to look through their profiles and contact them for roles. I'm so excited to see that when that comes together more. So I want to chat a little bit more about both of your personal communities outside of Tech Korea. So what are some communities that you belong to? And, you know, this could be anything. So I am Jewish too, so I participate in Jewish events. I love the community where we met, Marsha, uh, Comchat. It's a very good community for community managers. I do a lot of like coming into communities for a little bit and leaving. I did a lot of sports when I first moved to New York. I was in a volleyball league. I believe that like... Everything that we're a part of, in a way, is kind of like a community, right? We're trying in our building to get a community manager to, like, handle some of the tenants. We believe that, like, you know, cities should have community managers, that the country should have maybe, like, a secretary of community and things like that. Yeah, I do a lot of volunteering. I guess I'm involved with a lot of student groups, college students who are Latinx or Black and Latinx, actually, who are trying to get into tech. I got involved sort of volunteering to do application reviews and technical interview practice. And I do a lot of work with those groups, Color Stack, uh, Code 2040, to help get those students prepared and network with them to get them into tech roles for the first time. I'm involved a lot with that, with students just asking me, you know, interviewing best practices or how can I change my resume to show off this? This new skill. Other than that, I just moved back to Denver after a long hiatus, uh, and I'm really excited to get back in the local community here because I live in a very Latino community, and the work that they're doing to preserve the heritage of this community is really important to me. You know, down to park names and you know how they're gentrifying this area is all super important to me. So I'm very excited to get involved in those local groups as well. 
That sounds amazing. Congratulations on the move. So my last question for both of you, and I ask this of everybody on the podcast, what does the word community mean to you? I think for me, I didn't realize what community was until I moved away from my hometown for the first time. I think I didn't recognize that the feeling I had in my hometown was community. It was feeling comfortable being myself, feeling recognized as a member of the community and really seeing people like me, people I could identify with in that community who I thought were successful and amazing. And when I left El Paso and I left my hometown and I really got to experience what being a minority was like, I missed that community a lot, missed feeling welcome, missed feeling seen, really. So for me, Tequeria is that community where I feel valued, I feel comfortable to be myself, that home warm feeling you get when you walk into a room and feel very comfortable. I love that. That's so wonderful. And what about you, David? What does it mean to you? I sometimes think that it, it is interesting to like talk about where this word comes from or something like that. And I feel like, you know, community comes from like communal, uh, like when you have a communal kitchen, you know, sometimes we use the word so much, we forget about the meaning. And I think the most important part about community is just like, like a group of shared resources or shared experiences and being able to to be in a place or, or be in a community. I love that. That was a very unique answer too. I don't think I've ever had anybody point out that that's sort of the origin of the word. I definitely didn't think of it that way. Well, thank you so much to both of you for taking the time to chat with me. I learned so much from this conversation. It was so great connecting with you guys. Thanks for having us. I think we're always really excited to talk about Tequeria and and what we're building there. Even if it was sort of a accident, just trying to find one or five people turned into thousands. So thanks so much. I agree. Thank you so much. It's always amazing to be able to share. I hope that the listeners had a great time and I can learn something out of this experience and that, you know, we continue chatting and, and growing together and building together. I had such a great time chatting with Crystal and David, and I hope you gained some insights from the conversation. You can connect with Crystal and David on LinkedIn by searching for Crystal Garcia and David Silva. And you can learn more about Techaria at techaria.org. Thanks for tuning in to Create Community, a podcast where I chat with incredible community builders to define what community truly means. You can check out the series on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you normally listen. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I'd really love to hear your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at createcommunitypod or check out our website at createcommunitypod.com for updates. Once again, I'm Marsha Drucker, your host, signing off. A huge thank you to Origins Media House for producing this series. You can find them at originsmediahouse.com, where house is spelled H-A-U-S, or on LinkedIn and Instagram at Origins Media House and Twitter at Origins Media.